Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke 24, verses 42 to 48. That reading may be found in the Pew Bible on page 885. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise again from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Please pray with me. Father, I thank you for your word. It is the word of Christ. When it is preached, it is the voice of Christ that goes forward. And we know from creation that when the voice of Christ goes forward, entire universes can be created. And you can cause people dead and their trespasses and sins through the word of Christ to be made alive unto eternal life. We're asking you would do that kind of work as the word of Christ goes forward today. Would you please use this word in the life of us who have believed? Continue to shape us into the image of your son and awaken these friends of mine who are yet outside of Christ. Awaken them unto repentance and faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My favorite sport is baseball. Carl, I never thought we'd take games from DeGrom and Scherzer. I didn't see that coming at all. (laughs) It's my favorite sport to watch. If I was any good, it'd be my favorite sport to play. I did play when I was a little kid, and I was atrocious. I wanted so badly to be good. I I worked harder at practice than anyone else. I spent more time in the batting cages and one-on-one with my coaches than anyone else, but it was to no avail. When I would go to the plate, I would pray to get walked because I knew... I knew if the pitcher threw strikes, I couldn't do anything with them. Now, I was a decent fielder. I even called my coach one night to see if the rules allowed me to only play in the field and not hit. He told me they didn't allow for that. But there were some great players on my team. We had a really good team. And so I remember one year when we won a preseason tournament, even though I batted a robust zero in that tournament, I got the trophy that all the guys on the winning team got. Same thing when we won the league championship at the end of the season. I'm in the same picture alongside every other member of that championship team. No one who saw me play that year, including my parents, would have expected that I would end the season with any championship hardware. I certainly didn't deserve any trophies, but I got them all the same. Because the championship trophies, as it turns out, go to every kind of player on the team. The Gospel of Luke holds out something similar. It holds out a prize that's undeserved by those who receive it. It's a prize that, as it turns out, goes to the least likely recipients. And it's a prize that doesn't discriminate in who its recipients are. If you're on the team, it turns out anybody can be on the team. Now, what is the prize that's held out in the Gospel of Luke? Why is it that anybody can get in on it? Would you like to know how to have this prize? And if you do have it, how do you respond to having it? Well, I'm asking you to purpose to listen as we open God's Word to the Gospel of Luke today, and you're going to hear the answers to those questions. Now, it's a bit of a funny task 
that's before me this morning. We actually began this Luke series back in December of 2017, nearly five years ago. And we were in it through April of 2018. So we're not actually starting a new sermon series in the Gospel of Luke today so much as we're resuming one. Nevertheless, a few things have happened in the life of our church and in society in general in the past four and a half years. So it seems good to refresh your memory about the content of Luke's Gospel, not to mention that it occurs to me that there are a lot of faces that have become familiar to us at CMC that weren't even around when we hit the pause button in our Luke series. So to start to bring you back up to speed, let me ask you to take the sermon outline from your bulletin. If you didn't get a bulletin, you can go online right now to cmcvermont.org slash gather, and you can get a digital copy of the outline. And let me ask you to turn to the back where you have the background to the gospel of Luke, summary of the gospel of Luke, and so on. First, look with me at the background to the Gospel of Luke. As the name of the book communicates, very reliable and very early church history universally held that this Gospel was written by Luke, even though the book is technically anonymous. You know, Luke doesn't say, as Paul does in his letters, for example, Luke, a slave of Christ Jesus to the saints in so-and-so. The Gospel of Luke is anonymous, but there's every reason to believe that the Luke that's referenced in Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, where Paul writes, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. There's every reason to believe that's the Luke that wrote this book. And there's good reason to believe that Luke was a Gentile. It doesn't seem like Paul lumps Luke in with the men called men of the circumcision, in Colossians chapter 4. Luke also pays a great deal of attention to the gospel's work to and among the Gentiles in both Luke and Acts. And so for those reasons and others, I'm pretty persuaded Luke was a Gentile. And as we say here in this background section, based on Luke's mention in Colossians 4 as one of the men who were with Paul, based on the use of the word we... W-E, in so much of the narrative material of what Paul's doing in the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke, we know that Luke was with Paul a great deal as Paul's preaching and teaching and church planting and being persecuted. The Gospel of Luke was written to a man named Theophilus. We don't know a lot about him. He might have been a patron of Luke's. I think he has a cool name, Theophilus. It means in the Greek, lover of God. There was a time when I seriously tried to convince Sarah to let me name a son Theophilus. And if you've met our boys John Mitchell and Abraham, you know how successful I was in that endeavor. The Gospel of Luke is a two-volume work that ought to really be referred to as Luke-Acts. Luke wrote both Luke and Acts, and they belong together. It's really too bad that the Gospel of John divides them in our Bible so that their connection is less obvious. I've given to you on this background portion the overall message in Luke-Acts. The two books fit together so nicely. If you were to put both of them together, you'd see that in the Gospel of Luke, we start worldwide with a genealogy in chapter 3 that goes all the way back to Adam, from whom all people descend, and then Luke is ever getting us to Jerusalem. Starts worldwide, gets us to Jerusalem, and then in Acts, which is volume 2 of Luke-Acts, we start in Jerusalem, and we start to go worldwide from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, and finally to the uttermost parts of the earth. By the time the book of Acts ends, the gospel's in Rome. All roads lead to Rome, they said. It's the crossroads of the world. These two books hang together. Why did Luke write his gospel? Well, that's the question that the occasion answers under the summary section. He wrote, as he says in the first four verses of the gospel of Luke, to give Theophilus and the church as a whole an orderly account of what the Lord Jesus had accomplished in his birth and his ministry and his death and resurrection and his ascension and, with the book of Acts in mind, what Jesus continued to do in and for and through the church by his spirit. But notice that Luke was writing to an increasingly Gentile church. 
by the time he writes. Around the mid-60s AD, prior to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70, very likely prior to Paul's martyrdom at the hands of the uh, mad emperor Nero in the mid-60s AD. So Luke has a great deal to say about Gentile inclusion in God's saving purposes, and that reflects that he's writing to churches that include an ever-increasing number of Gentiles. So that occasions the writing of the gospel. But what's Luke's purpose in writing? Well, as we say there, it's to demonstrate that all that Jesus said and did was in fulfillment of God's saving purposes, which always included all the nations. And lastly, the theme as we see it from the Gospel of Luke encapsulates the occasion and the purpose. God's promised salvation, always intended for Gentiles and Jews, has now been accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and must be proclaimed to all the nations. And then you can see in the outline how we see that theme working itself out in the Gospel of Luke. Turn with me now to the other side of that page where you'll find the outline to today's sermon. Now, even though beginning next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going to parachute into the Gospel of Luke where we left off back in April 2018, where we left off was Luke chapter 9 and verse 50. So our sermon next week is going to start at Luke chapter 9, verse 51. And you can listen back to all of those previous sermons in Luke on our website. I want to orient you, or if you weren't with us before, or if you were with us before, rather, reorient you to the whole of Luke's gospel before we get started in earnest with a text next week. We're calling this sermon series, Salvation Accomplished for All the People. We think that's a helpful encapsulation of the message of Luke. So to orient you to Luke, I want to break down that phrase. And the first word in that phrase, of course, is salvation. One commentator wrote, quote, the idea of salvation supplies the key to the theology of Luke. Salvation itself is the theme which occupied the mind of Luke. The key verse, I think, from Luke that highlights how the idea of salvation permeates this gospel comes from chapter 19 and verse 10 at the end of the account of Jesus with the tax collector Zacchaeus. In Luke 19.10, Jesus says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. No statement made about Jesus' mission in his first advent is more concise or clearer. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And this salvation idea runs the whole of Luke's gospel. You see it in the narrative material surrounding the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. The angel Gabriel tells Mary in chapter 1 and verse 31 to name the son that she, a virgin, is going to miraculously carry in her womb through the work of God the Holy Spirit. The angel Gabriel says to her, you shall call his name Jesus. The name Jesus means the Lord saves. Jesus' very name speaks to his salvation mission. When Mary sings her song of praise, that Magnificat, later in chapter 1, she says that her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior, whom she carries in her womb as she sings. When John the Baptist's father, Zechariah the priest, is filled with the Holy Spirit and begins prophesying later in Luke chapter 1, he says that with the arrival of the baby in Mary's womb, the Lord God of Israel, quote, has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And Zechariah prophesied that his son, John the Baptist, would grow up to preach in advance of the ministry of the Savior, Savior giving, quote, knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. What does the angel say to the shepherds the night Jesus is born? Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which is for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That's who the Lord Jesus is. He's the Savior. That's why he came. He came to save. When the godly Jew Simeon saw the baby Jesus with Mary and Joseph at the temple in Jerusalem, just days after he was born, 
What does Simeon say when he takes the Lord Jesus into his arms? Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Luke's still beating the salvation drum as he chronicles Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist is preaching in the region around the Jordan River and he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That's what will be seen, John says, in the ministry of Jesus. The salvation of God. You have to get something clear. Jesus came to save. That's why he came. And that saving mission, that saving mission gives us the lens through which to see everything else that Jesus said and did. His ministry priority was salvation, healing people from sin and death and the devil. Jesus doesn't use the word salvation when he formally begins his ministry in the synagogue in Nazareth in chapter 4. I'm thinking that those of you who are going to be going to Israel next month might, might take a stop in Nazareth. And if you do, you'll certainly see the place that's almost surely the synagogue where the events in Luke chapter 4 take place. But it's clear to the Lord himself that proclaiming and accomplishing salvation is the reason he came. He says in Luke chapter 4, quoting from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Proclaiming good news to the poor, proclaiming liberty to the captives, proclaiming recovery of sight to the blind and the setting at liberty those who are oppressed. Those are not all different things. They're different ways of saying one thing, and that is that Jesus came to save. All Jesus' miraculous healings in the Gospels, people freed from demon oppression, the blind receiving their sight, the lame made to walk, lepers cleansed, the deaf made to hear, the dead raised. They're all signs to show that Jesus has come to overthrow the rule of Satan in the sinner's life and to indwell them by the Holy Spirit. They show that he's come to give saving sight to the spiritually blind. They, they, they're signs to show that he's come to give to those deafened by sin ears to hear the voice of the good shepherd. He's come to cleanse people from the eternally disfiguring disease of sin. To cause those who are dead in trespasses and sins to be raised to newness of life. That's what Jesus says in chapter 7 to those who come from John the Baptist asking him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus responds, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Those miracles in that ministry are to cause John to conclude who Jesus is, Messiah and Savior. I say in your bulletin outline that salvation is seen in Jesus' ministry priority. You have to be clear that Jesus' chief aim wasn't to give blind people their physical sight or lame people the ability to walk. He came to save. In Luke chapter 17, the Lord cleanses 10 lepers. Only one of the former lepers, a Samaritan, Luke points out to us, comes back to give thanks and praise to God. Jesus says to the grateful former leper, as the ESV has it in Luke 17, 19, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. He says the same thing to the woman who's hemorrhaging blood in Luke chapter 8. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. 
Did you hear those two statements? Your faith has made you well. Cross-reference those two statements with Jesus' encounter with, quote, a woman of the city who was a sinner, Luke 7 tells us. She learns that Jesus is at a Pharisee's house and she comes to that house with an alabaster flask of ointment and she weeps and washes Jesus' feet with her tears and wipes them with her hair and kisses his feet and anoints his feet with the ointment. And Jesus pronounces her sins forgiven and he says to her, your faith has saved you. It's the very same thing Jesus says to the cleansed leper and to the bleeding woman when he says to them, your faith has made you well. Get this. Whether Jesus is talking to a scandalous woman who comes to forsake her sin and to worship him, or whether he's responding to a man or a woman who worship Jesus after the Lord heals them, his word to them is the same. Your faith has saved you. Because for Jesus to pronounce healing to a leper or healing to a hemorrhagic woman is to say to them, I've come to forgive your sins. I've come to save you. I've come to heal you from the disease you need to be healed from, your eternal sin. It's to say to them, you're not unclean because of your leprosy and your bleeding. You're unclean because of your sin. And I'm going to heal you and show you and everyone else that I can perform the greater miracle. I can forgive your sin and save you. Are you getting what I'm saying here? Salvation is the theme. And Jesus' healing and exorcising miracles were in service to the saving work that he ultimately came to do. His priority in ministry wasn't physical healing. It was the preaching of the gospel of his salvation and doing the work to accomplish that salvation. And that salvation theme is also seen in his death. That's the work that accomplished the salvation that Luke's going on about. Does Luke have salvation as his theme at the cross? He sure does, but in an ironic way. Why don't you turn with me to Luke chapter 23? And then just keep your Bibles open in Luke. I'm going to begin reading at verse 35, Luke chapter 23. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Luke's in the New Testament. It's the third book, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke Chapter 23, beginning at verse 35. Jesus is on the cross, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. How is this salvation theme seen in Jesus' death on the cross? Well, it's seen in the scorn of those who mock the Savior as he hangs. The accursed object of the Father's wrath toward the sin of his people. The Roman soldiers who watch mock his saving power. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. One of the criminals beside him sarcastically calls out, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Never realizing that it's by virtue of his not saving himself that he's able to be the savior that Gabriel said he would be. And that Zechariah and Simeon prophesied that he would be. And that Jesus himself preached that he would be and performed miracles signifying that that's why he came. 
this salvation theme is seen so clearly at the cross. Jesus didn't save himself at the cross because he came to save the lost. And at the cross, it was one or the other. Save himself and damn his people. Let himself be accursed and save his people eternally. And Luke's message of salvation is seen in and after Jesus' resurrection. After Jesus has died and been buried for three days and raised from the dead, he tells his disciples in the verses that Julie read for us earlier, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Do you hear that phrase? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins? That's salvation language accomplished only by the Christ's suffering and on the third day rising from the dead. But I think it'll be helpful in understanding Luke to show you how thorough is Luke's obsession with this idea of salvation. I want you to get just a small glimpse of how Luke carries it over in the book of Acts. You say, well, my Bible says it's the Acts of the Apostles. Acts isn't about Jesus. I mean, he ascends as soon as the book opens. Yes, he does ascend. But he tells us in John's gospel that when he ascends, he's going to send his Holy Spirit, the Spirit who is called the Spirit of Jesus in Acts chapter 16. So whatever you see the Spirit doing in Acts, you can attribute to the Lord Jesus Christ, who, along with the Father, sends the Spirit, who is the Spirit of Jesus. And so in Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts 2, what's he preaching about? He's preaching about salvation. He's quoting the prophet Joel, and Peter says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Later in that same chapter, who's being added to the church? The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. When Peter's telling fellow Jews about how the gospel and the Holy Spirit had come to the Gentiles, Peter recalls to them how an angel went to the Gentile Cornelius and told him that Peter was going to come to him. And the angel told Cornelius, he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. Something similar is promised to another Gentile, the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. Paul and Silas are in the clink. They have a prayer meeting. There's an earthquake. They're miraculously freed. And in desperation, the jailer cries out to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they say to him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Now what am I saying with all of this? Simply this. You can't understand the gospel of Luke until you understand that from beginning to end, beginning with the birth of Jesus, going through his life, his death, his resurrection, and then his work by his spirit in the book of Acts, the message is Jesus saves. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. But this salvation is the accomplishment. It's the fulfillment of God's promises in the Old Testament. Luke wants his readers to be clear about that too. Notice how the Gospel of Luke is actually bookended by that message. Go with me to Luke chapter 1. Salvation accomplished. Go with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been noted, accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So Luke tells Theophilus that it seemed good to write an orderly account of what Christ said and did, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So Luke's writing about the things, the things pertaining to salvation, that have been accomplished among us. So keep that in your mind and go with me 
very near the, the, the end of the Gospel of Luke, to chapter 24. That's the last chapter. And go with me nearly to the end, to verse 44. Luke 24, 44. Jesus speaking. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That word accomplished in chapter 1 and verse 1, the word fulfilled in chapter 24 and verse 44 are the very same word in the language Luke used to write this gospel. They're interchangeable. And Luke has essentially bookended his gospel with them. That's a literary device that Luke's employing, and it's meant to cause us to see it and to go, whoa, okay, that is an important idea. He's got it at the beginning, he's got it at the end. That means the whole book is about this idea, this idea of fulfillment, this idea of accomplishment. Yes, Luke bookends his gospel with the idea of things accomplished because he wants you to know that this salvation, that Jesus' saving work is the accomplishing of what the Lord promised would come to pass in the Old Testament. You see this idea in the four Christmas carols in Luke chapters 1 and 2. We won't go to each one of them, although you can listen back on our website to our four Christmas messages from last year when we preached a sermon on each one of these songs. But go with me to Zechariah's song, back in chapter 1, beginning at verse 67. Luke chapter 1 and verse 67. I wish I had time to demonstrate all the ways that Zechariah's song is replete with references to how the birth of Jesus and Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist, are the accomplishment of Old Testament salvation promises. Look in verse 70. Zechariah says that the Lord's raising up of horn of salvation is what he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. This salvation, Zechariah says, is to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. All that's being accomplished, Zechariah says, is to accomplish the salvation that God promised to our fathers, that he swore to Abraham, that he spoke by the holy prophets of old. Do you hear all of that accomplishment and fulfillment language? How about when we hear from old Simeon again at the temple, when Jesus is presented there according to the law of Moses? What does Simeon say? He says that the baby Jesus is the salvation that the Lord has prepared in the presence of of all people. He's prepared it, he's planned it, he's executed on that plan, and he's brought it to pass. Luke is telling us what the Lord has promised according to salvation, he is doing. Jesus is clear that his life is the accomplishment of God's eternal saving purposes. We heard it from Jesus in Luke chapter 4 earlier when he preaches in the synagogue at Nazareth on that Sabbath day. He's opened the scroll of Isaiah to Isaiah 61. And when he finishes reading the portion of Isaiah that Luke quotes in chapter 4, Jesus says to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled. Again, also think accomplished. This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying to them, what Isaiah prophesied has come to pass in your sight and in your hearing. That's what Jesus is saying. After he's raised from the dead, Jesus rebukes two of his disciples for not understanding that all the things that had been happening in Jerusalem were in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies and promises. Jesus says to them in Luke 24, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Later in the same chapter, as we heard read earlier, Jesus says to the twelve minus Judas Iscariot, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus is giving his disciples and us, by extension, 
the key to understanding the whole of the Old Testament. It's all about him. It's all about his first coming and his miracles and his teaching and his death and resurrection and his second coming. The Old Testament is all about Christ. And therefore, the New Testament is all about revealing how in Christ all the Old Testament's promises about the Lord's salvation of his people have been accomplished or will be accomplished. And this fulfillment, accomplishment theme runs through Luke, particularly in regard to the statements about what must be done or what's necessary. In your outline, I've talked about how it's seen in Christ's resoluteness. Don't quickly skim over those phrases if you're reading Luke's gospel along as we go. What must be done or what's necessary. They're important. The very first words we hear from Jesus in Luke's gospel communicate this idea. Maybe you remember the story. Mary and Joseph and Jesus are caravanning with who knows how many others to Jerusalem for the annual feast of the Passover. And when they begin their return journey to their home in Nazareth, they lose Jesus. When they finally find him, he's in the temple and he says to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I must be in my father's house, Jesus says. It's the idea of it's essential that I be in communion with my father, doing my father's business, accomplishing the purpose for which he sent me to save my people. In chapter 4 and verse 43, when people are clamoring for Jesus, he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. He says he must accomplish the purpose for which he was sent. Mere hours before his arrest and crucifixion, he tells his disciples in chapter 22, verse 37, I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. The angels at Jesus' tomb tell those who were frightened to find the tomb empty. The angels say, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And again, in Luke 24, he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Luke's refrain of the things that must be done helps us to see that there's an eternal, unfailing plan that's coming to fruition before our eyes. These things that Luke chronicles happen because they must happen, lest the Scripture's promises go unaccomplished. You can't understand Luke's gospel without understanding that it's about salvation. And you can't understand Luke's gospel without understanding that that salvation is the accomplishing of promises laid out in the Old Testament. And third, you can't understand Luke's gospel until you see that this salvation that's being accomplished in Luke and Acts, according to God's plan in the Old Testament prophecies, is for all the people. We have a key verse for this idea too. It's from the angel on the night in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for what? All the people. This salvation that's being accomplished among us is for all the people. That is, it's for Jews and it's also for Gentiles. Remember, Simeon tells us when he cradles Jesus in his arms, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. In chapter 7, a Roman soldier, a Gentile, in charge of a unit of a hundred soldiers, sends for Jesus to heal this centurion's servant. Jesus agrees to go, but before the Lord arrives at the centurion's house, the soldier sends word that he knows that Jesus need only speak a word 
and the servant would be healed. And Jesus, Luke says, marvels at this soldier's faith. And even says to those around him, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. In the next chapter, Jesus heals a man in the Gentile region of the Gerasenes who had been possessed by demons who had driven him mad. But Jesus cast out the demons and saved the man and caused him to be, chapter 8, verse 35 says, clothed and in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And then Luke says the man even went around in his region telling of all Jesus had done for him, a Gentile missionary to the Gentiles. Jesus said in his, after his resurrection in Luke 24, we've already heard it, that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. This salvation that's being accomplished is for all the nations. It's for all the peoples, Jews and Gentiles. Like me and my baseball team, it's for people that don't deserve the prize. People who no one thought would be among its recipients are receiving it by grace through faith in Jesus. And the prize is salvation. And that idea gets worked out in Luke's gospel. Not only as the good news of Jesus gets to Gentiles, but also as it gets to outcasts to those who would sort of exist on society's margins. Mary's song in chapter 1 praises the Lord for how his salvation has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Women have a place of prominence in Luke's gospel that wasn't in keeping with how women were thought of in the ancient world. In the beginning of chapter 8, we see several of Jesus' female followers listed by name. Arguably the most famous parable Jesus ever told, the parable of the Good Samaritan, has as its hero a Samaritan, one of a group of people from the region of Samaria that was formerly entirely Hebrew, but later intermarried with pagans and became a mix of pagan and Hebrew blood that the Jews came to despise. When Jesus tells the parable concerning banquets that teaches who's going to sit around his table in the age to come, he says in Luke 14, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the just. The parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15 has as its audience both Pharisees and scribes and tax collectors and sinners. And it's the son that symbolized the tax collectors and sinners that ends up being the son who loves the father. In chapter 19, I'm talking about how this salvation has come to the outcasts. Jesus goes to the home of the chief tax collector. These guys were loathed in Israel a guy named Zacchaeus. Even though he was a Jew by birth, his fellow Jews hated him for how he stole from them to line his pockets and the pockets of the pagan occupying Romans. But Jesus says to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. And who's perhaps the quintessential outcast? Who receives salvation in Luke's gospel? I think it's the thief on the cross. From the other gospels, we know that at first he joins with the other criminal in mocking Jesus. But as he hangs beside the Son of God, he's given eyes to see the Savior for who he is. The criminal is given eyes to see how his salvation is being accomplished right beside him. And this criminal says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. How do you like that? Salvation for all the people, including criminals, as they draw their dying breath. Well, so what? How does this overview of the Gospel of Luke affect your Monday? Three ways. First, I hope you can go through your Monday and your every day 
rejoicing in this Savior and in his salvation. We've talked a lot about salvation today, but I don't want you to miss that bound up in the idea of salvation is the fact that you need saving from something. And that something that this salvation saves you from is eternally offering with your own body the just payment for your sin against God. This salvation that Luke is heralding saves you from eternal death. It saves you from the eternal lake of fire. It saves you from being the object of God's undiminished wrath forever and ever. And Jesus is able to save you because he didn't save himself. That's why he came. He came to save. He came to seek and to save the lost. So are you lost? Are you lost? Junior high student, Senior high student, are you lost? 20-something? 30-something? 60, 70, 80-something? Someone who knows nothing about the Bible or someone who's been going to church all your life, are you lost? If you are, then you're in the category of people Jesus came to seek and to save. So ask him to seek you and to save you. Are you saved? Rejoice! Because you used to be lost before he sought you and saved you by dying in your place. And by dying the death you deserve to die on the cross so that you can be forgiven of all of your sins and have all of your sin debt satisfied and have your sin burden lifted off of you and have communion with God. You can be the Father's true Son. Dwell with Him in eternity. So believer, think on this Savior and on His salvation Listen to things and read things and be around people who cause you to think on this Savior and think on this salvation as the antidote to your despair and your depression and your discontentment and your anger and your boredom and your being satisfied with lesser sinful things. Second, trust in the Lord who accomplishes salvation promises. You know, I've spoken with some of you, and I know that for some of you right now, life just gets right up in your face so that you can hardly see around it. And I want to say to you, brother and sister, when that happens, trust in the Lord to keep his salvation promises. The gospel of Luke is saying to us on every page, God hasn't failed to do anything Anything he promised to do, what has been accomplished in the life and death and resurrection of Christ is the fulfillment of God's promises. And so my beloved brother and sister, if that's true, then you can trust him to keep the salvation promises yet to be accomplished. You can trust him to finish the good work of salvation that he's begun in you, even when you feel like sin is still nipping at your heels or even trying to grab you by the throat. He's kept all his saving promises up to now, and that tells us he won't fail to keep the ones yet to be accomplished. You can trust, you can have a sure hope that he's going to send his son back to balance all the books, to make sure justice gets accomplished, to make sure the scales get balanced, to set all things to right, to make the sad things come untrue. Isn't the best predictor of future performance past performance? And God's never broken a promise. And a great many of his promises have already come to pass. The only ones that haven't yet have to do with his son's return. So if he's batting a thousand so far, you ought to conclude that he's going to bat a thousand going forward. And rest, rest in the sure fulfillment of his saving promises for you, dear brother or sister. Rest, no matter what's going on. Let his promise to accomplish this salvation 
unclench your jaw and loosen your shoulders. I like Joshua 21.45. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. That's right. Rest and trust. He's going to accomplish all of his saving purpose through his son. Lastly, reject the category of too far off. I mean, if Gentiles can be saved, and there's a whole lot of us in this room, Gentiles who were once separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, if Gentiles can be saved and Samaritans can be saved and prodigal sons and chief tax collectors and women with scandalous reputations and dying thieves, then nobody's too far off, including you. So reject the category of too far off with your neighbor who keeps rejecting your invitation to church or WIBS or men's night. He's not too far off. She's not too far off. And your son or your daughter or your grandson or your granddaughter who shows no gospel interest, who shows nothing but gospel antipathy, they're not too far off. And your coworker who won't do a Bible study with you or your spouse whom you've been trying to live out the gospel in front of for years, or your parents who think you're a Jesus freak, or your friends who think you've become an ignorant, hateful bigot for your faith in Christ. Keep praying for them. Keep evangelizing them. Keep inviting them. There's no promise in the word that the Lord will save them, but if he doesn't, it won't be because they were too far off. No one's too far off. This salvation that's been accomplished in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ is for all the people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for salvation found in your Son. We thank you that you have kept your salvation promises. You have accomplished them And you will yet accomplish them at your son's return. And we thank you, Lord, that this salvation is for Jew and Gentile alike. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We bless you for that promise. We bless you for your son. We pray in his name. Amen.